This is Digital Health Today, episode 13. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Now, here is your host, Dan Kendall. Welcome back to another episode of Digital Health Today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and it's my job to bring you the innovators, leaders, and entrepreneurs who are working to make a difference in healthcare. So far on this podcast, we've had guests from Germany, the Netherlands, Tunisia, India, all across the USA, the UK, Spain, France, and more. There's so much happening with digital health transformation all around the world, and today we're going to explore what's happening somewhere new, Africa. But actually, We're going to explore some great activity in Africa that's being driven by an entrepreneur and health expert who's based in Denver, Colorado. But first, let me ask you, have you joined our digital health community yet? Join thousands of innovators around the world and get access to the latest news, information, events, contests, and more. It's free to do. Just visit digitalhealthtoday.com slash join, punch in your email address, and you're ready to go. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, my guest is KP Yaupala. He is the CEO and founder of Access Mobile. That's a digital health company he formed to develop solutions to improve patient-provider interaction using mobile and cloud-based offerings, but with an added twist. They're deploying their technology in various countries across Africa. KP started out studying pre-medicine at university, and although he's passionate about healthcare, he eventually developed the sense that he was really an entrepreneur at heart. He did a master's of public health at Yale before going on to do some really fantastic work with organizations like the Clinton Foundation. KP has spent years working in the field, and he knows firsthand what the challenges are to delivering healthcare in rural and underserved communities. Today, he's going to share his experience in creating change, breaking down barriers, and delivering a much-needed service to users in Africa. There's a great video of the work being done by Access Mobile, so please go to the website and check out the show notes at digitalhealthtoday.com slash 13 to watch that. Now let's tune into my conversation with KP Yalpala of Access Mobile. Thanks very much for joining me on the program and welcome to the show. Great. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate this opportunity. So KP, I've explained a little bit to the listeners about your background and some of the things that you're working on. Can you share with us some of the, the personal insights into your own path that's taken you to where you are today? Great. I'm happy to do that. So I go by KP for short, but my name is uh, Kapama Yopala. I'm a, I'm a first-generation American. So both my parents are from Ghana. I'm in West Africa. And my mother is from Accra, and my, my, which is the capital city. My father is from a small village in northern Ghana near the border of Burkina Faso and grew up in this very rural context. And came to the U.S. for graduate school. So my father did quite well in the education system, became a lawyer in Ghana, and then got a scholarship to do his PhD in Wisconsin, which is actually where I was born. And so for me, the type of work that I'm doing is uh, when I think about bridging between you know, Western business models and the African context, it's something that's really close to home because it's, it's embedded in my identity. So tell me again where your father went, uh, where he moved? He was in Wisconsin, so that's where he did his PhD. So he was a trained lawyer and worked as a lawyer in Ghana. Um, met my mother in Ghana. They were married there. And then I received a scholarship to do his PhD um, in the U.S., in Wisconsin, and at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So, you know, our, our story is that very typical immigrant story here to the U.S. And so that's where the name comes from. I'm, I'm a Ghanaian-American. 
if you want to look at it that way. And I really look at my identity as someone of the African diaspora, which is in our business has played a critical role in what we do. Um, and that we've had many people who have similar stories to me who either live in Africa now or, you know, are born somewhere in, in sub-Saharan Africa in a country and have lived and worked overseas and have come back, but one way or another identify themselves as a broader African diaspora. And our company has benefited from working with people like that who understand both worlds and can think about innovation in the African context. So you were born in Wisconsin. Where have you lived? I've lived all over the world. So in my career, I had the fortune of being able to work in East Africa and several countries. I've lived in Tanzania. Um, I've lived in Rwanda and Kenya. I spent a, a lot of time in Ghana. Um, and so, you know, I've traveled all over, obviously, in the type of work I've done. So I've had that chance to kind of be, you know, a bit of what someone might call a global citizen or someone who's had exposure to many different places. And, and, and I enjoy that. And it's underlies a lot of why I do what I do and how the work that we do with Access Mobile has come about. And now you live in Denver? Yeah. So now we, we live in Denver. We spend our time here. My, my wife is from Denver. So I have two young kids. Uh, they're six and three and a half. You, you've lived all over. What were some of the things that you were doing when you've lived in all these various countries around the world? From college onward, I've always been involved one way or another in, in public health and in economic development. I actually was pre-medicine in university and kind of got the sense early on in, in, in my training that I was a bit more of an entrepreneur and wanted to kind of take the public health route. So um, I, I went on to do my master's in public health at Yale and then had the opportunity to be one of the early employees in um, what's now called the Clinton Health Access Initiative, which was the work that President Clinton's foundation is doing around HIV AIDS care and treatment in sub-Saharan Africa back in the very early days. This is back in uh, 2004. And so as a health guy, that's where, that's the underpinning of my background and experience. So we've, I've had a lot of experience working in public health systems in African countries and partnering with ministries of health or government actors, nonprofit organizations and foundations, and more recently, the private sector. So um, everything I'm doing and, and what we'll get into around technology comes from this public health and health systems underpinning. What are some of the other things that you've done in the field? I think that's a big value or perspective that you bring to your role and your capabilities is you've been there in the field. What are some of the things that you've done and seen and projects that you've rolled out uh, during that time? The first enterprise I ever started was actually a nonprofit organization. It was called Network for the Improvement of World Health. It's something I started while I was in my undergraduate in public health. I'll give a quick anecdote. So back in 2003, we were doing a rural health project. And at that time, one of the big challenges that the Ministry of Health had in Ghana was around electronic data collection, particularly from rural areas. There is no infrastructure. We had a partnership with a firm that worked with Inmarsat, which is uh, the world's largest satellite communications provider. And we had this small device called an RBGAN. The RBGAN was slightly smaller than a laptop. And when you open that device and turn it on, it captures a satellite signal. 
you could connect it to a computer and generate connectivity. So imagine that we'd be out in rural areas using this device connected to a computer to try to send data from the rural area to the central ministry of health, right? Imagine this is what we were doing, experimenting with in 2003. And little did I know that, it, you know, fast forward over 10 years later, I'd be doing what I'm doing now with digital health and all these trends that we'll be talking about. So, right. <laughs> so I had I had no clue that that was the direction I was going. But these ideas have been percolating for some time. Fast forward, I started working with the Clinton Foundation um, after my during and after my time at Yale. And in that context, we were working with national governments around their national scale HIV AIDS programs. So these were programs where we were partnering with governments and other stakeholders to ensure that people that were living with HIV AIDS can actually access the drugs and treatment they needed. And there was a big movement around this, this critical need at that time, which still is, is, is a very important issue in global health. And so I was on the ground floor working in places like Tanzania and other countries in East Africa in conjunction with ministries around national scale government programs. And so these are two examples of, of the types of work that I was doing, living and working in both West and East Africa, which became the underpinnings of a lot of the ideas that we're working on now. What are some of the things that you saw specifically working there that, uh, I mean, I know that in Africa, they adopted a lot of mobile payment methods on feature phones that, you know, haven't even, some of these things aren't even available yet in the Western countries. So what are some of the things that, that sort of uh, caught on that you thought this is really powerful? Yeah, I think the, the market is still in transition. And so there should be a point where at the end of the day, we're not talking about digital health and health. It's just, it's the way things are done, Right. And I would say that what we can be mindful of in the African context is it's a part of, I, I believe, this global trend, which is just redefining how doctors and patients and consumers engage in the health ecosystem through technology. And those same things are happening in the African context. The difference is that when you look at the African healthcare sector and, and you look at hospitals and clinics, many of them do not have any legacy systems, right? So if you look at Western markets, there's often been legacy technologies that have been used over the decades. And as those technologies have become entrenched, the switching costs from those technologies becomes harder and harder. And in some cases, we're left with arcane systems that don't allow patients and doctors to engage the way they want to technologically. In the African context, we don't have that problem. The majority of hospitals and clinics today are not digitally enabled. So if you can actually play a role in digitally enabling these clinics in a smart way that makes sense for the patient and for the doctors that care about driving quality and improving health outcomes, you can start to actually leapfrog these types of dynamics that we see in certain Western markets and innovate around that interaction. But to get there, clinics and hospitals have to be digitally enabled. And, and the consumers are already starting to get enabled through the mobile phone in African countries. This is where our company comes in. Our company is looking to now digitally enable hospitals and clinics in a meaningful way and help consumers engage in that healthcare system. 
Where were you? What? Give me some insight about what caused you to say, this is it. I've got an idea. I'm going to start a business and these are the people and this uh, that I'm going to serve and this is the solution that I'm going to develop. How did you transition from those sorts of field projects to deciding I'm going to start this business and this is how I'm going to go forward? So there are two key things that I observed doing this work over over several years. The first thing that I observed is that the charity model in sub-Saharan Africa, I'm just going to focus on the sub-Saharan African context, and public sector-driven models have been the primary way that healthcare services have been delivered in countries. And as I got to intimately know those programs and the realities of those initiatives, while I, I note their importance and that um, the social sector and organizations that serve the underserved are critical, it's not a panacea and that market-driven models play a critical role in economic development and in health and human welfare. And my belief as I started to do this work is there needs to be more done with market-driven models in sub-Saharan Africa where we can generate value, we can create new value in markets that's sustainable through the growth of these economies in sub-Saharan Africa and that also does good. And, and to me, that required thinking about different models of how we do things. The second trend that I observed, and this is while I was living in East Africa, is that telecommunications and mobile phones were playing this new and critical role in creating new infrastructure to be able to connect people and enterprises. And this is something that many people are starting to read about in sub-Saharan Africa, where you look at markets like Kenya or in, in generally in East Africa and now more and more in West and Southern Africa, that more and more people have phones. There's more and more internet and data connectivity and more and more people are engaging through that infrastructure. So while I was living in East Africa, I started to see this happening on the ground and realized that there was a tremendous opportunity there when we're thinking about health issues. And so um, I then did other work. I worked as a management consultant working on different types of international projects. I was based out of Washington, D.C., but we worked with clients um, all over the world, Europe, Africa. And from a family perspective, my, my wife was uh, having our first child, and um, we were looking at different opportunities and what we were thinking. And honestly, I looked at these trends. I said, you know, I really want to go after this, but we were just also starting our family. So we moved to Denver. And I started spending a bit of time in Denver and a lot of time on the ground in Africa trying to understand these opportunities. So as, as any entrepreneur, you know, balancing your personal priorities and business is always a challenge, but it's critical. And so it was at that time that I really decided to make the jump and said, you know what, I want to try to get into the digital health space in sub-Saharan Africa. But what I'm not going to do is start a nonprofit organization. You know, the challenge that I was up for was that I wanted to bring a sustainable model driven by global standards around tech innovation into the African context. And so, in a way, being of the African diaspora and understanding both worlds became one of our strongest competitive advantages. So it was about 2011 and you decided to start Access Mobile 
Uh, that's pretty early. And you not only chose to start a business, you relocated your family, you were expecting your first child, and you decided to start a business that focused on a population on a different continent. <laughs> so you really, you really clearly had some drive to take on all these different challenges at that time. So where did you start? How did, how did it start to evolve? I know you've had a lot of success. I want to talk about the success, but tell me a little bit about those early days, some of the things that you did. It was early for sure. And I think there's a num, there's a convergence of a number of trends that I observed. And everyone thought many aspects of what I was doing were crazy. But I actually really believed and had a very clear vision of how this could play out. In terms of the early stages of the company and the financial support we gained, we ended up generating our first project through a contract in Uganda. That is how we ended up in the Uganda market. So as I was exploring these opportunities, I met with some stakeholders in Uganda who were interested in testing out our ideas around using mobile phones for data collection and enabling technologically clinics in a distributed way. And in 2012, we did a national scale project in Uganda that was funded, it was revenue um, in our first year to deploy a data collection system across 70 clinics nationwide. And we scaled the project in three months and it was, the evaluation had very favorable results. So that was, I think, unusual, but we started in our first year with revenue and really getting our hands dirty and implementation um, in Uganda at a time when telecommunications infrastructure was definitely improving, but not there. And so we weren't ideating when we started the company. We went straight into implementation. And as we started to learn in the market, we started to understand that these opportunities were more regional in their focus and in their nature, and that to build a truly scalable model, the next assumption was that we had to build a product that could be used by clinics and hospitals in many African countries, not one. Our premise was if we didn't have a product that was truly scalable in the African context and then globally, we didn't have something that was a disruptive innovation. So these were some of the principles that we were testing very early. So one, we were early on the digital health curve. Um, two, we were thinking about cross-border scaling and testing in a market context where people thought that you needed to focus only on one country. And three, I had internalized that I believed that business models themselves were being disrupted and that we could run this company in a distributed way that would allow us to create value and basically generate those returns in many different markets at once. And all those three things were kind of all these variables we were juggling. And fortunately, along our path, we then started to get some good partners that, that helped us along the way. So I want to talk about that in a second. But one of the things that I heard you say there that I, I really like and I want to sort of go back to is you focus really heavily on execution, getting in market. And a lot of times I'll talk to early stage businesses and they, they talk about their idea and they talk about trying to get investment. And I'll explain to them that the, there are lots of investors out there. They're called customers. And if you can try to find a way to give them value that makes them want to part with their money to, to have that benefit or that solution, then that's a way to attract the potential investors. How much time did you spend at the very beginning looking for investors? Or did you just say, you know what, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to go out there. I, you've, you've been in those markets. You've seen the problems. You've delivered the solutions. And you just said, I'm going to go out there and get this done. And then the investors and partners can sort of come after you've gotten some traction? No, I mean, as you know, with any tech innovation, it's, it's very cost 
directly up front to generate those innovations. So, you know, once we had had our first project and we had some revenue in the door and we had that fortune, I mean, and I can say it was a bit of, we had a bit of luck early in the company and that we're able to land a deal. But in terms of really understanding these markets, it takes time and it required investment to be able to, to focus on the, the customer or the prospective customer and how to create value. And so we then opened up a family and friends investment round. So where we could operate in a bootstrapped way, but we could focus primarily on these clinics and where we could create value for them. So there was an intensive period of running very lean, which brought a lot of challenges with it, but then being really dedicated to being in market. So we had you know, based on the work we did in Uganda, we had a team there, small, but that was constantly engaged with the market. We started spending time in Nairobi um, and other East African countries um, testing out those markets. As we did that, we had many twists and turns without getting into all of them. But, you know, it's a windy road. Entrepreneurship isn't, it's never a straight line. And as I started to talk to people, I was connected to two individuals who could see that I was onto something. And this was through one of my advisors in my company who had seen us going through this process and some of the challenges and said, you know what, this is something that I think we can push. Let me introduce you to some people. And the long and short is they became my um, angel investors in our Series A investment round which then allowed us to take all the learnings from, you know, basically from 2011 into 2014 and 2015 and translate them into now a globally or sub-Saharan Africa and then globally scalable model around our tech innovation and our business strategy. And so those angel investors, then they've invested over 2 million in our series A and we're finalizing some some details around their most recent contribution as investment. And then we'll be opening up a financing round for further growth um, late this year and into early 2017. It did require investment. That's That's critical. And what I can say is there's not enough private equity investment in sub-Saharan Africa in digital health. Um, the numbers are trivial compared to what we see happening in global trends. And that be, will continue to be a challenge for the industry in sub-Saharan Africa. So what about people who look at opportunities in Africa and say, and I've been on both sides of this uh, conversation and uh, argument, if you will, which is about um, you know countries like those in Africa that have the opportunity to leapfrog some of the Western medicine in that they don't have quality service, a high quality service level uh, delivery that they can compare to. So in Western markets, we're always comparing new innovations to the status quo and just determining if there's enough evidence and rationale and money and resources available to, to invest in what ultimately becomes a secondary service delivery model often because they can't completely abandon the infrastructure and the legacy of our existing ones. Whereas in some of these developing parts around the world, we can talk about Africa, we can talk about many countries in, in many parts of the world, but some people look at it and say, well, wait a minute. Well, there's a very poor 
delivery or no delivery, an absence of delivery in some of these markets. So if we can come up with these solutions, they'll be able to embrace this more quickly. Where do you come down having lived, worked, having family heritage, business experience, delivery experience in these markets? Where do you come down in, in that sort of perspective? The first principle that I work with and that I think any serious entrepreneur is working with is that there's an unacceptable situation. So the unacceptable situation to me is that there's billions of dollars pumped into public health in sub-Saharan Africa, and that if you live in a sub-Saharan African country, more likely than not, unless you can afford it, it's very hard for you to access quality healthcare. That, to me, is the unacceptable situation. Like with all the tools and resourcing that are available today, if you live in Nairobi or, or Accra in Ghana or Lagos or Johannesburg or anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa, you should be able to access a decent standard of care. So that's the first principle. So if you're operating from that principle, the state's unacceptable, then it's like, okay, what needs to happen? So you know, our mission is that we want to contribute to driving access to quality healthcare services in sub-Saharan Africa and beyond through mobile and cloud-based technology. So we see these technology innovations as a part of the answer, not the whole answer, but it's the way we want to contribute, right? And so that's where I come from. So I'm saying, well, one, I'm not going to sit around. So the unacceptable state, I'm not going to sit around and just watch it happen. So I'm going to do something about it. And, you know, that's where we come from as a, as a mindset. So, you know, that requires then saying, how do we transition from this current state into a new state? And that's going to require new models. So to my point, it's going to require thinking about the role of private health sector, about new technological innovations and what consumers are ready for and how to improve patient outcomes. All of that requires people that are investing and focusing on those problems. And if we are, I believe we'll come to the answers. But if we're not investing in thinking and solving the problems, we're definitely not going to get any answers, which then allows the current unacceptable state to persist. Can we talk about some of the partners and the individuals that you've gotten involved? Where are you in terms of some of the, the partners that you've gotten behind you and that you've worked with in various capacities? You know, in our opinion, these challenges are so pervasive. You really need to work with partners if you want to make a dent in them. And so and the partners can vary based on the goals. But the first partner that's been a tremendous impact for us is Microsoft. In early or actually in late 2012, I was invited as a speaker to Microsoft headquarters in Redmond for what they called their Africa Business Forum. And they were bringing in different individuals to speak about the state of um, business growth and technological innovation in Africa to Microsoft employees and friends of Microsoft. And, and through that first engagement, I started to connect with um, many people at Microsoft, including Africans and people of the diaspora who work for Microsoft, both in Redmond and in the African offices. And those individuals I started to learn a lot from, and they also started to, some of them, really get a sense of the, the broader vision and what I was trying to go after and, and could see that where Microsoft was going, there could be alignment. Fast forward, by January of 2014, Microsoft launched a corporate initiative called For Africa. And For Africa is Microsoft's, it's not a CSR initiative, it's their business initiative 
to be more relevant in African markets across the board. So that means from developers, so having more African-trained software engineers that can go after these type of problems we're talking about to their platforms such as Azure, making those tools and, and infrastructure more prevalent to their devices and, and other strategies. So we were fortunate to be, as a part of that, they launched an innovation program. We were one of the first five companies in sub-Saharan Africa selected into their innovation cohort. And so through that, we're then able to get support, both financial training for our engineers. Our products run on Azure, Microsoft's cloud, so technical support there. And that then has grown over time into a very deep and substantive partnership where we expect to do much more with them over time. We partner with more recently with Facebook on a program they have called Free Basics. We just launched our first consumer-facing application, which is called Gozi, which allows health consumers to find their nearest healthcare facility and to access services and connect with those doctors through a basic application. So it's the consumer-facing side of our strategy. Facebook's free basics program has the objective of making web content more available to people in emerging markets by developing versions of sites that work on basic phones. So, you know, the majority of people in emerging markets are starting to have web browsers on their phones, but those web browsers are not on high-end smartphones, but on lower-end smartphones or on high-end feature phones. And so they've developed a set of criteria where if you build your site to meet their standards around those basic phones, that they can make your web content freely available to consumers where they will not be charged any data services. So Gozi now, we have a free basics version of the site, which means that in partner countries, consumers will be able to find the healthcare they need through a site that works on a simple phone and that's free to them as a consumer. Um, so those are some examples of the types of partnerships we're building, and we'll be excited to announce more in the near future. You touched on a little bit there in terms of devices, because I mean, you've really, you're, I, I love that you're doing this. I mean, you're actually, you're not talking about it. You're not waiting for somebody to invest in you. You went out there, you used your connections, your knowledge, your understanding, and your experience to identify projects that you could do on a pilot basis to try to drive some revenue, to try to drive iterations of products. You've got a long way to go, and you've got a lot of challenges, but they're not your challenges exclusively. They're challenges that a lot of people are facing, but perhaps they're more unique because, I mean, when we talk to developers in Germany or in the US, they're talking about Android versus iPhone. You're talking about entirely different devices in these markets that are using entirely different uh, platforms like what you talked about with the Facebook uh, Free Basics program. So what are some of the things that you're seeing there in terms of hardware challenges and opportunities, as well as cost. So on the infrastructure perspective, one of the things that we've learned and that others working in this space in sub-Saharan Africa know is that you have to be a holistic solutions provider when you go to these facilities. What that means is that even if we're bringing a basic electronic health record and practice management system that runs on the cloud and is highly affordable, if that facility doesn't have the right infrastructure, meaning devices or solid internet connectivity, 
then your solution can't drive the intended value. Um, and so it requires thinking more holistically when you go into these facilities about their needs and about how you can create a set of offerings that is flexible based on the facility. So to your point on infrastructure and devices, device costs are coming down. So from a device perspective, many people have, let's just start on the mobile side, many people have mobile devices. And one stat worth note is that Samsung has a report that came out that said that by 2020, they project that 70% of people in sub-Saharan Africa will have a smartphone. Now, why is that? First reason is that the price of smart devices is dropping dramatically. And as the, the price of the smart devices drops concurrently in African countries, data services or wireless data services are in expanding in terms of their penetration. So you have a convergence of a decreasing price in smart devices and increasing or expanding infrastructure around data services, and the price of data services are also dropping as the demand goes up for those services. So you converge all of those. Basically, what we're saying is smart device-enabled people and, and enterprises, is it's coming. It's inevitable. For context, when I started the company in 2011, the only way people talked about communicating with anyone in Africa via phone was via SMS, and that that was going to be the only technology that was really viable. And then another technology called USSD, that those were the only two technologies that would really allow you to scalably connect with people. But that will change over time more and more. That's great. There's a, a concept that's written about in a book that I really enjoy and highly recommend, which is around co-innovation. And I think that's really what you're describing. The book is uh, The Wide Lens by Ron Adner. And he's a professor up in uh, Dartmouth in New Hampshire. And there's an interesting story. If, if you ask a lot of people who invented the light bulb, many people will tell you Thomas Edison. But actually, the interesting aspect about what you're talking about that, that applies is that Thomas Edison actually didn't invent the first light bulb. There were light bulbs invented decades before his. But what he did was he invented the first economically viable light bulb that could be produced and at a quantity where people could use it. But more importantly, what existed when Edison invented his light bulb is that there was a network to deliver electricity. And without the electricity, right. nobody had a need for a light bulb. It's like the person with the first fax machine. So right. what you're really talking about is all these different levels of co-innovation that are taking place in technology from Microsoft and Facebook. And you see it happening with banking and LED lighting and solar energy. So many things are happening in Africa that are collaborating to create this environment where solutions are going to be created. And I, I'm glad to see that you're right there doing these sorts of things firsthand. So you're, you're based in Denver. There's a history and there's a tradition of some great quality digital health startups coming out of Denver. iTriage was formed there. What's the other big one that was born? The health grades that they got started there in Denver as well, right? Right. Yeah. So, and now I believe you're involved with the Health Catalyst, uh, with Mike Bazzelli's program, right? That's right, with the Catalyst ecosystem. So, can you tell us a little bit more about what is happening in Denver, one of the fastest growing or the fastest growing city in the U.S.? I understand digital health. There's a lot of visibility about this environment. People often think Boston or Silicon Valley when they think about digital health, but I know Denver's really working to make a name for itself. What are you seeing there being based there? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing to point out is you might start to see a common line. When I was in Ghana working on this project with satellite devices, little did I know where I'd be going in the future with technological issues in healthcare in Africa. Coming to Denver, it was a family choice. My wife is from here. I did not know much about Denver when I moved here, but I just happened to stumble into one of the fastest growing tech ecosystems generally in the U.S. And from a digital health perspective, also one of the leading digital health ecosystems in terms of the growth of digital health startups and in terms of the the innovations coming out of the state. And so being in the catalyst ecosystem that Mike Baselli is starting, just bringing together all the different digital health innovators in Colorado into one space, right, into one ecosystem where people can collaborate and engage. To me, that's only going to enrich our ability to contribute to these trends in digital health that are happening globally. And it will it will help create value based on what we learn in the African context. And what we learn in the African context will help create value and offer innovative concepts here. And, you know, to me, it's from that you get these unexpected collisions or unexpected collaborations that will lead to places we may not anticipate now. And so we want to be in those type of spaces and those type of ecosystems. Absolutely. So it's not an either or choice between having distributed models or localized teams. It's really both. I think there's strengths and benefits of, of both aspects. And I mean, you can combine them, having people having that, as I call it, a creative collision of ideas being elbow to elbow, overhearing conversations, having those water cooler conversations and things of that sort. But then also you have distributed teams that are also making connections in their own networks, uh, own areas, and bringing some of their own understanding and perspectives from the world to your project, it, it can really work both. And I think your your company's evidence of that. What's next for you guys? You're in three markets now, three countries, I should say, in Africa. What What's next? What do you, what do you have coming up that you can uh, give us a glimpse about? And in terms of what's next, I mean, what you can expect is that our, our enterprise-facing platform called AM Health, which is Simply put, electronic health record and practice managed system designed for emerging markets context. What that means is we're taking a facility that has never used any technology and we're giving them a tool that helps them enter the digital domain in a comfortable way. I mean, on patient engagement for those facilities that maybe have something, we're helping them take their patient engagement to another level. So I think what you'll see with us is it's it's about the connecting. Like we want to be facilitating that relationship between the health clinic and the doctor and the patient. And our innovations will continue to evolve that way to do more of that connecting um, in ways that create value for the consumer that wants to find quality healthcare services that's in need of those services and wants to remain connected in that ecosystem. And on the enterprise side, You'll continue to see growth of our product in the current countries and in new markets in East and West Africa. So we're very excited about that. But everything comes back to us wanting to contribute to helping people get quality healthcare in Sub-Saharan Africa. Like we want them to be able to find the services they need when they need them and at the quality that they deserve and expect. 
Well, KP, we've got a very engaged audience to this program. What can people do who are listening? How, how can they engage and support your programs or potentially become users of your systems in Africa? So definitely on our website, like there's a way where people can contact us. If you'd like to be registered on a newsletter or anything of that type for Access Mobile, people can also contact us and let us know because we will have a regular newsletter that talks about new partnerships and innovations and markets um, that we'll be releasing soon. Great. Uh, we definitely look forward to hearing from, from people and their thoughts and advice and any potential partners out there. Excellent. Are you active on Twitter personally or is the business active on a Twitter account? My Twitter handle is at Yalpala, and I can send that to you for your, <laughs> okay. for your listeners. And then we have at Access Mobile Inc. is our um, business Twitter handle. So we're very active on Twitter and people can also follow what we're doing there. Brilliant. Okay. Well, listen, KP, I've got a few questions that I'd like to ask you before we wrap up. You okay to do that? Yes. just That's just fine. Great. So KP, what's the best advice or your favorite quote or saying that you've received over the years? So the one that I always come back to, it's, it's a quote that I think many might be aware of from Nelson Mandela, but the quote is, it always seems impossible until it is done. What advice do you have for other innovators and entrepreneurs that are working in health? And they, that can be specific to your experience in developing countries or just broadly around the opportunities in digital health. Have a good advice for them? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the key things that I've learned is that, you know, I saw someone give a talk. He was a serial entrepreneur that's become an investor. And he said his observation, like working with entrepreneurs and investing and having been an entrepreneur, is that oftentimes entrepreneurs see the right opportunities, but maybe get the timing wrong. And so, you know, because there's a very high failure rate for, for startups and question is why? And that was the context in which this question was asked. And that, you know, I think, you know, the, the feedback I, I can give from our experience is that everything takes time. And at sometimes I think, well, was, was I too early or, you know, are we not moving fast enough or, you know, is this something that, you know, one can endure? And I think if one studies truly disruptive innovations that make it, it always takes time. We just hear about them when they start to succeed. And so I think for innovators and entrepreneurs, it's something to keep in mind to help you persist through the challenges and through the unexpected bumps in the road and, and also the high points is just knowing that things will, you know, it's possible to get there to whatever you're trying to get to. But no matter how you do it, it's more likely than not, it's going to take longer than you expect. And you have to determine whether you're, you're there and you're fully committed. What book would you recommend to our listeners and why? So <laughs> I'm actually going to recommend two, sorry. Okay, <laughs> but, no problem. But the, the first book is a book called Competing for the Future. It's a book by Gary Hamill and C.K. Prahalad. This book is published in 1996 and is one of the seminal books on business strategy. And in it is this concept they talk about uh, what, what they call intercepting the future. So this book was written in the context of, of the business model disruptions that were happening through the 90s. And a lot of these principles have actually remained true about how you think about disruptive markets from a business strategy and how you position yourselves for creating value in the current state, 
but also being able to intercept the future and therefore remain a force and an innovator in a market. That book, I think, is really interesting when one looks at tech models and combines it with a book like Lean Startup. So Lean Startup now is a more classic book that people in the tech industry read um, that talks about how one can go about trying to build and scale an innovation. And I think that the Lean Startup principles are very strong and practical and that when they're combined with a book like Competing for the Future, which talks more about business strategy and tactics, it's quite an interesting synergy. What technology tool or app do you recommend and why? I probably use what a lot of people use. But I think that generally speaking, all these different tools that are out there that facilitate distributed communication are, are really the reason why Access Mobile can operate the way it does. So that's everything from Skype to WhatsApp to Slack, which I'm sure many people talk about. But the ability to kind of use those tools in the appropriate ways for different parts of your business and innovation process can become very powerful. But but also we've learned it's about the culture of your organization and everyone understanding how and why those tools may be used in certain ways. But we're, we're finding a lot of value from a suite of solutions that allow us to communicate and engage you know, in a way where in a day I'm interacting with our sales team in Kenya and with my regional director who's at the GSMA Mobile 360 Summit as we speak in Dar es Salaam and a user in Lagos, like all that can happen in a day, right? It's incredible when you think about it. So it's just about how one configures those tools around their purpose. And lastly, KP, we'll be making a financial donation to a charity of your choice. What charity do you have in mind? And uh, can you tell us a bit about what you do? But we actually spoke before we started recording, and uh, you may want to suggest an overall theme for the sorts of charities that you support or the types of purposes that you support. Can you give us some insight? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that in this context, I'll just, I'm going to add a few caveats. I'm a guy who's worked in the foundation and nonprofit sector. In the African context, I really believe in the need for private investment. So that's just philosophically where I come from. So, you know, I want to see on the one hand, more young entrepreneurs receiving seed capital and growth capital to grow their businesses. And that's kind of our orientation just in my personal point of view around the space. When it comes to charities, one area that I think is interesting and that I'll probably recommend an organization offline is around the area of emerging infectious disease threats. So these are things such as Ebola, which everyone's aware of, Zika virus, for many reasons, which aren't for this discussion. There's the continued threat of, of these emerging um, infectious diseases. And there are threats that are not just relevant to any one geography, but to everybody, right? And so I think that that's an area where we need to pay attention um, and where we need to be supporting people and, and institutions to understand what's the driver of these issues? How do we mitigate those drivers? How do we address these challenges when they happen? And, and naturally, you can imagine connected information and, and engagement tools also play a really critical role in being able to inform people when these things are happening and ambition them to be able to protect themselves. So it also has a broader technological 
um, underpinning and in, in how we address them. Great. Well, thanks for giving so much thought to that. I, I know that you have a great perspective uh, about the best use of money and delivery of services. So please do send that link to me offline and I'll include the link in the show notes. Great. KP, listen, this has been a great discussion. I've learned a lot. I, I am such a big supporter of what you're doing and the, the overall purpose of advancing the uh, people who are doing work in digital health and new technologies that will provide better care, make it more accessible. So thanks very much for coming on board this program and being a guest here. We'd love to continue to stay in touch and understand more about what you're doing and promote the big wins when you have them. That's great. Thanks so much for this opportunity. It's been a very enjoyable discussion and we appreciate being able to share not just about the work we do, but a little bit more about our story. So that's been really great. Thank you for that. There you have it. Lots of great content and information and you can find all the links and details in the show notes at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 13. If you found this podcast helpful, why not share it with someone you know? Stay tuned for upcoming episodes where we welcome Neil Jordan, the global head of health for Microsoft. Kate Ryder, the founder of Maven Clinic, a telemedicine platform that's focused on women's health, and many others. Hit subscribe on your podcast app to be sure to get all these episodes instantly as they go live. And I'd love it if you drop me a line to let me know exactly what you'd like to hear next. Email me at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in. That's it for me today. As always, and until next time, keep on innovating. <laughs>